Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you too are hypnotized and must answer all my questions. Come forward and answer me now. person inside of Reagan? <coughs> Who are you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Was This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. At my job, I'm known around the office as the movie guy. All of my coworkers know and listen to this podcast. So on an almost daily basis, my coworkers turn to me for film recommendations. Now, I'm never at a loss for words, and one of my favorite things to do is to recommend older films to a few coworkers that are in their early 20s. When I ask them if they've ever seen a certain film and the response is no, my reaction is never, what? How can that be? Instead, I get giddy with excitement at the prospect of someone seeing a classic film for the first time and hearing their reactions. I will admit that sometimes I'm a little disappointed by said reactions. Case in point, one of my coworkers tell me that Jaws is boring. Blasphemy. Now that type of reaction is more typical for films made in the 1970s. So over the years, I've developed a subtle yet effective way in which I recommend these older films. It's my time travel recommendation. I tell my coworkers when they watch the film, they should watch it from the point of view of being alive when the film came out and understand that when a particular film was released, it was indeed a fresh idea that had never been seen before. This is the case with the subject of this episode. Two weeks ago, while talking to one of my coworkers, Jay, the subject of horror movies came up. Naturally, the exorcist came into the conversation. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it, and nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter 
doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! One hope, the only hope, the exorcist. I asked him if he had saw the movie. His response was no, but he had heard of it. Thus began a 10 minute long conversation in which I laid out the time travel recommendation. I told Jay that this film was released only five years after the Motion Picture Association of America's president, Jack Valenti introduced what would become the first voluntary rating system. You see, prior to 1968, movies were subject to what was known as the Hayes Code, an incredibly strict set of guidelines which essentially said that movies cannot contain nudity, intense violence, sexually suggestive material, or anything that might be considered morally objective. Now, for decades, movies were forced to be sanitized because if a film failed to meet the Hayes Code, Cinema owners faced steep fines if they showed the film in their theaters. Now, as you are aware, the 1960s was a major decade of change in the United States, and that also applied to the film industry. More and more filmmakers began to push the limits of the Hayes Code, with some outright ignoring it. And theater owners, understanding that there was a revolutionary change going on, began to show more and more films that were not approved. The Motion Picture Association of America decided to no longer fight this and instituted the rating system overnight movies changed. This can most notably be seen with the absolute polar opposite best picture winners of 1968 and 1969. 68 was the G-rated film Oliver, and 1969 was the X-rated film Midnight Cowboy. Side note, the X rating would be replaced in 1990 by the NC-17 rating. Indeed, Six of the best picture winners in the 1970s were rated R. Now, these are films that could have never been made without the introduction of the rating system. I explained all of this to Jay and then proceeded to tell him that this also meant that movie theater audiences were seeing things they had never seen before and that the 1970s was the golden age for what would become contemporary cinema. But I also explained to him that everything wasn't all wine and roses, that this decade was ripe with controversy regarding the release of certain films, and that none were more controversial than 1973's The Exorcist. In 1971, author William Peter Blatty's novel The Exorcist was published and became an instant bestseller. The Exorcist was Blatty's fifth published book and easily his most successful. I just thought I was writing a supernatural detective story. Is the girl possessed or is she not? And it was to be imbued with the mystery of faith and belief in God. You're going to die up there. Hello, I'm William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist. I'd like to read for you today a few of my favorite excerpts from the novel. In this passage, Father Damien Karras, the Jesuit psychiatrist, has finally relented and agreed to examine Chris McNeil's daughter, whom she claimed is possessed. This is Karis's first meeting with Reagan and or the demon. Reagan's eyes gleamed fiercely, unblinking, as a yellowish saliva dribbled down from a corner of her mouth to her chin, to her lips stretched taut into a feral grin of 
foul-mouthed mockery. Well, 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 she gloated sardonically, and hairs prickled up on the back of Karis's neck at a voice that was deep and thick with menace and power. So it's you. <laughs> they sent you, she continued as if pleased. Well, we've nothing to fear from you, Karis. While attending Georgetown University, Blatty was told about the story of two Jesuit priests that performed an exorcism in America in 1949. It was this case of supposed possession and the subsequent exorcism that inspired him to write the book. Now, Blatty chose to set his story in Georgetown and base many of his characters on real people that he had met, including famed British archaeologist Gerald Lancaster Harding, whom Blatty based the character of Father Marin on. After the success of the novel, Blatty sold the film rights to Warner Brothers. He was also brought on to not only write the screenplay, but also serve as the film's producer. Now, the budget was set at $12 million, which would be close to $70 million adjusted for inflation. So this was, by all measures, a big studio film. And Warner Brothers was looking to go all in with this production. Directing offers went out to Stanley Kubrick, Mike Nichols, and Peter Bogdanovich. Now, Blatty was opposed to all of them and insisted that the studio hire William Friedkin. Friedkin was coming off the success of The French Connection, the gritty cop drama that won Best Picture in 1971. Now, when it came to casting the film, the studio was, of course, wanting to bring in the big guns. For the role of Father Karras, Jack Nicholson's name was the first to be floated around, but Blatty wanted Stacy Keach. But it was Friedkin that pushed for actor Jason Miller. Marlon Brando was the studio's first choice for Father Marin, but Blatty and Friedkin considered Brando too big of a star for the role and opted to cast Max von Sydow, who was 44 years at the time. Now, interestingly, is the character of Father Marin was actually aged 73 and Saito was in the makeup chair for hours each day of filming. The role of possessed girl Reagan McNeil ultimately became one of the more challenging roles to cast, as it called for some pretty heavy method acting, and a lot of the parents of the actresses considered simply would not allow it based on what they had read in Blatty's screenplay. A relatively unknown actress by the name of Linda Blair was cast in the role. Now, ironically, the agency that represented her sent some 30 actresses to audition for the part, but not Blair. Now, what's very interesting about Blair's role in the film was that although Freakin had planned on using Blair's actual voice, albeit manipulated with special audio recordings, ultimately a voiceover actor by the name of Mercedes McCambridge was brought in to record the dialogue of Reagan while she was possessed. Even more interesting was that Linda Blair was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. However, this nomination was handed out before it was made known that a voiceover actor was used. Now... The Academy has strict rules and they were not allowed to take back the nomination, but many credit the discovery of this voiceover actor as the sole reason Blair didn't win the award. The role of Reagan's mother was offered to Jane Fonda, Audrey Hepburn, and Shirley MacLaine, but it was a phone call from actress Ellen Burstyn to William Friedkin in which she made the case for why she would be perfect for the part that landed her the role. I mean, what if a person uh, came to, you know, that was a murderer or criminal of some kind and they, and they wanted some kind of help. I mean, would you have to turn him in? Well, if he came to me for spiritual advice, I'd say no. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. But I would try to convince him to turn himself in. Uh-huh. And, uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? If, um, if a person's you know, possessed by a demon or something. How do they, how do they get an exorcism? 
Well, the first thing, I'd have to get him into a time machine and get him back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McMahon. Um, yeah, since when? Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia, all those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism, not one. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it just so happens that somebody very close to me is, is probably possessed and needs an exorcism. Father Karras is my little girl. And that's all the more reason to forget about exorcism. Why? I don't understand. To begin with, it could make things worse. Oh, how? Secondly, the church, before it approves an exorcism, conducts an investigation to see if it's warranted. That takes time. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, it, your daughter... You could do it yourself. No, I you? couldn't. I need church approval, and that's rarely given. But, oh. Could you see her? Yes, I could. I could see her as a psychiatrist, but I can't oh, see her. Oh, not a psychiatrist. She needs a priest. She's already seen every fucking psychiatrist in the world, and they sent me to you. Now you're going to send me back to them? Jesus Christ, won't somebody no, help me? No, you don't me? see. You don't understand oh, your daughter. God, can't you help her? Just help her. <laughs> the opening scene of the film was shot in Mosul, Iraq. Now, William Friedkin actually had to use a British film crew because at the time, the United States had no diplomatic ties to Iraq. Although set in Georgetown, the majority of the movie was filmed in New York, with only exterior shots of Georgetown, including the now-famous staircase, being used. The bedroom set that was constructed for the third act of the film was actually able to be brought down in temperature to as low as 30 degrees. Now, there have been numerous documentaries made on the making of the film, and I urge all of you to seek them out. There were wild stories about what it was like to be on the set. Just a few examples. William Friedkin wanted to have an actual exorcism performed on the set before filming began, but was talked out of it because it was decided that it would cause way too much anxiety amongst the cast and crew. Ultimately, they did have a priest bless the set. On the first day of filming, Max Van Sido was so shocked by some of the lines that Blair was performing that he actually forgot his lines of dialogue during the scene they were filming. Now, Freakin insisted on authentic shock value, always keeping the actors in the dark about what would happen during key scenes, including the vomiting on Father Karras. Freakin even went as far as firing a gun in the air during a scene to get an authentic reaction from actor Jason Miller. The Exorcist was released on December 26, 1973. The studio wasn't even sure what the reaction to the film would be and decided to release the film in just over 20 theaters. Then this happened. On December 26, 1973, in 24 selected engagements in the United States, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin, opened. From the novel that had long been on the bestseller lists and directed by the man who had brought the French connection to the screen, The Exorcist had long been awaited, widely speculated upon, and anxiously anticipated. But no one, no matter how close or deeply involved in the film, could possibly have anticipated what was to happen at every theater where this film played. I can't possibly go. I love it. Try it. 
Fantastic movie. It's really gross. <sighs> it was really terrific. Yeah. I want to see if it's going to make me throw up. The Exorcist scored the biggest opening day gross for a single theater in the history of Los Angeles motion picture houses and broke established records in every other theater where it opened across the country. In record-breaking, coast-to-coast, first-week grosses, The Exorcist brought in almost $2 million at 24 theaters. In six days, The Exorcist surpassed all previous box office records at three theaters in New York. At Los Angeles, two more theaters were open. In Chicago, the pattern was the same, and the dimensions of The Exorcist experience broke on the motion picture world with an impact rivaled only by the audiences that continue to pour into all these theaters. It was, of course, first evident to the theater managers that The Exorcist was no longer just the most successful motion picture in film history, but had become an unquestioned sociological phenomenon, breaking out of the theater pages and television reviewers' hands to the city desk, the front page, and hard news on telecast from coast to coast. I'm Harry Francis, manager of the National Theater here in Westwood. I've been in this business 40 years now, and I have never gone through anything like this. It's exciting. Public love it. Had crowds that you can't believe. We've hired 20 security guards to control the crowds. We're getting uh, young people, old people, you name it, we get anyone. Last week, in the rain, they stood as it was a sun today. Uh, Mr. Freakin and Mr. Blatty felt sorry for the people. They hired uh, caterers. They give out 3,000 cups of coffee each night, a total of 6,000. The public thought it was great. The phenomenon that would become The Exorcist, like I said earlier, was not without its controversy. Numerous parents, advocates, and religious groups boycotted the film, but this only fueled interest in the movie. It sort of became a badge of honor to say, I saw The Exorcist in the theater. There were countless stories of people running out of theaters across the country, and many theater chains actually handed out vomit bags to everyone that purchased a ticket to the movie. Now, although The Exorcist is considered an absolute American classic, at the time of its release, it was met with very mixed reviews from film critics. William Peter Blatty is with us tonight, uh, who is the author, also the producer of the motion picture The Exorcist, and it, the book, as you know, was on the bestseller list for over a year, and um, those of you who've seen the motion picture, uh, a lot of things have been said about the film. Uh, practically every place you go now, if you're a cocktail party or in the home, the, that picture comes up, and you get violent reactions on both sides. Some people think it was a great picture, some critics thought it was, uh, was not. Well, I'll tell you one thing, when you see the picture, you, it leaves an impact on you when you walk out of the theater. You have known you've seen something. Uh, would you welcome the author and producer, William Peter Blatty. Yes. Bill, I wish I could ask you one question that you probably have not been asked since that picture came out, but we, we screened it one night, and there were about ten people watched the movie, because people told us before you see it, they said, don't see the picture alone. Mm -hmm. They said, see it with people. Uh, and I think it's better to see it with people, because you get divergent reactions to the picture. Yeah, I, I know. It's, there is a, uh, one should not see the film alone, which is probably part of the problem with uh, some of the negative reviews. You know, you cannot, reviewers insist upon sitting alone in a cold screening room. And uh, there is a chemistry 
I mean, the film is an assault upon the nervous system. It is that. And, and the, the concentration of other bodies around you and other brains around you is a part of the effect or the impact of the film. Yeah, it's like watching a picture in a drive-in sometimes where you don't have the reaction with the other people. You're hearing it all by yourself. Well, comedy. I mean, you can't Almost. see a comedy for, in a drive-in. It's murderous. It's insane. Did you think the picture was going to get this kind of reaction? Now, as I said, it, the, some of the critics in the East didn't care for the picture. Many other reviewers of um, <clears throat> fine credentials thought it was one of the year's ten best pictures. There seems to get that kind of mm-hmm. a violent reaction. But I suppose that's true in this kind of a picture or anything that is, is, is shocking uh, and has a controversial theme about it. Well, I, I wouldn't be so benign with uh, some of the reviewers uh, who are negative. I mean, I think Pauline Kael, for example, needs an enema. And that, uh, no, I did not read her review. Did she, uh, I mean, it, it, her review is, re- reviews always are so full of personal poison attacks upon the makers of films. I mean, what, what do you say about a woman who, uh, who thinks that Cycle was a playful film, that the, the French Connection was a, a fascist film? I mean, this is, this is a, a serious study for the psychiatrist, psychiatrists, I think. For Pauline Kiel. I've asked pictures, excuse me for interrupting, but I've asked people who saw the picture and said they didn't, and they said, well, I said, did you read the book? And they said, yes. I said, well, that's what the picture is, really. That's right. You followed the book very faithfully, and the book was horrifying, and it's shocking, and it is, uh, it assaults your senses. And I assume that when you went to make the picture, that's what you went to do. Was to, that's what the story the, is the, about. The intent about. is to, to move the viewer. This is uh, based upon what we believe is an actual case. And uh, in addition to having a passionate impact upon you, it, it's supposed to tell you something. Uh, as you know, there are people who have been fainting uh, in the theater uh, between five and ten every performance. And uh, you wonder, is that too much? Well, when Aeschylus' Orestes was first presented before an ancient Greek audience, it's reported that grown men fainted. And, uh, of course, you wonder, really, only a psychiatrist is com- competent to, to comment on, on why we get this reaction. But uh, I hope that it's because that the viewers, some, some viewers are frightened, but it's touching a nerve, and I wonder how often that nerve is the realization that the horror on that screen, that demon, is the ultimate father to, the ultimate blood relation to, and the ultimate destiny of, of cheating your brother and calling it business. Yeah. I think that's what it com- comes down to. Ultimately, The Exorcist was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning two for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. When the dust settled... Through multiple re-releases throughout the 1970s, The Exorcist would go on to earn more than $400 million worldwide. That's more than a billion when adjusted for inflation. Everybody saw this film. It looks like the type of disorder that's rarely ever seen anymore, except in primitive cultures. We, we call it uh, somnambuliform possession. Quite frankly, we really don't know much about it at all, except that it, it starts with... Um, conflict or a guilt and it leads to the patient's delusions that his body has been invaded by some alien intelligence uh, a spirit if you will look i'm telling you again and you better believe me i am not going to lock her up in some goddamn asylum right and i don't care what you call it i'm not putting her away i'm sorry you're sorry jesus christ 88 doctors and all you can tell me with all of your bullshit is Of course, there is one outside chance for a cure. 
uh, I think of it as a shock treatment. As I said, it's a very outside chance. Would you just name so... it, for God's sakes? What is it? Do you have any religious beliefs? No. What about your daughter? No. Why? Have you ever heard of exorcism? Well, it's a stylized ritual in which the uh, rabbi or the priest try to drive out this so-called invading spirit. Uh, it's been uh, pretty much discarded these days, except by the, the Catholics who keep it in the closet as a sort of an embarrassment. But uh, it uh, has worked, in fact, although not for the reasons they think. Of course, it's, it's uh, purely a force of suggestion. You know, the, uh, the victim's belief in possession is what helped cause it. So in that same way, the belief in the power of exorcism can make it disappear. You're telling me that I should take my daughter to a witch doctor. All right, I am pleased to welcome back to the show Kelly Goodner. Kelly, it's, it hasn't been that long since we last chatted. We did a great conversation about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that received a, uh, a lot of great feedback. And when I had you on last time, you were discussing, you know, some of the things that you had been working on. And, and you really sort of pinpointed on this on this uh, series of books that you've been writing. And really excited for the listeners to know that the first of the five books that you're going to be doing uh, is going to be released today. And Correct. I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about what that book's about. And uh, I've had an opportunity to read it. I think it's amazing. I think it's going to serve us very well in this conversation. So welcome to the show and, and please let the listeners uh, know about the book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm kind of excited to talk about it. I've never talked about actually writing in as as in depth as I do in these books. So it's, you know, it's definitely the first time I've it's you're getting something very rough, <laughs> I'll say. But these books are uh, they're called Scenecopedia, and it's supposed to be like an encyclopedia. It's like a reference book that you can flip back and forth through. And each book is a different genre. And um, I've got horror, which is the one that comes out today, action adventure, suspense, comedy, and drama. Because I feel like most screenwriting books. It's mostly a screenwriting book, even though really anyone can use it. They kind of talk about films as if there's only one type of film. And so I really wanted to, first of all, separate the basic genres and then within the genre show how different all of these different films are. Because every book has 25 films from that genre. And I write out every single scene that is in that movie and kind of break it down into eight so, just so that you know where you are in the movie. And then do a little bit of analysis of it so that you can quickly compare if you're working on one genre, whether you're a producer, you're a writer, you're whatever you're doing, you can quickly look back at things that have been done before, how they did it, you know, what the running times were, when this happened, and uh, because that's how I learned how to do it. And so I just decided to put it out and see if it would do the same for anybody else. One of the things that I was having a really hard time wrapping my head around was how comprehensive this book was. So, <laughs> so, so naturally, the first question I have is, uh, just the horror genre book alone, I mean, how long did this take to put together? Because this is, you know, and I say this in a, in, in a very complimentive way, like this is ridiculously comprehensive. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a little shy about it because I feel like that is the reaction so far. It's like, 
<laughs> like, what kind of crazy person are you that you did this? <laughs> you know, and uh, and it's a little too I'm a little too exposed, I guess, <laughs> in how my mind works and how I spend my days. But I mean, you know, every movie is, let's say, roughly two hours. And it takes a little longer than that to actually write down all of the scenes. And I thought it was going to be a little shorter of a process than it was, because then you check everything a thousand times. And, you know, especially when I've seen the movies so many times, making sure that I didn't do shorthand that other people weren't going to understand. And so it, I ended up having to go back through all of the books, you know, probably at least 10 times over what it took me to do them initially. But I started this just for myself in spiral notebooks, which was really stupid because um, I didn't know it was going to be so useful. So I was just like, I'm going to write down all the scenes in Jaws, you know, so that because I keep referring to Jaws and wanting to know how that structured something. So instead of throwing it on all the time, I'm just going to write this down. And so that was how it all started. I did it with maybe Jaws and Back to the Future and Fright Night. I mean, a weird assortment, you know, based on whatever I was working on. Yeah, so I just started writing them down like that. And then I had these notebooks filled with handwritten scenes. And I, at a certain point, I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to type these back up <laughs> to get them in some readable format. Um, and then, of course, I changed the lists a little bit and put them into genres. So it became a bigger project than it, as is always the case, it always just expands and, you know, it, but you wouldn't do anything if you knew how big of a, an ordeal it was going to be when you started. Right. So there's 25 films in this book right here. I guess the question I have is how easy was it for you to pick these 25 films? I mean, there's a few what I would call no brainers on here in the horror yeah. genre, but I think there's a few in this book that are going to surprise some horror fans. And, yeah. and I'm wondering, I wanted to do it a little bit like that and not just the most obvious, but on the other hand, do, you know, the important basics, but I didn't, most of the classics are obviously not new. So I wanted to do some that were a little more in the modern style, for instance, um, sinister, like of the Blumhouse stuff. I chose that one. And, and this was, I started putting this together before get out. And I also, I thought about adding that one. But then modern movies, they get broken down online the weekend they come out sure. by people. And so I just thought everyone's talking about that. I'm just going to, you know, leave my list the way it is. But um, but yeah, like, for instance, uh, Drag Me to Hell, I think, is one <laughs> that people may be like, Drag Me to Hell. What You know, you've got like The Shining and even of Raimi, like, why Drag Me to Hell? Yeah, that was a case where I thought, well, I want to have most of the horror auteurs in there. So I wanted to have a Raimi. But I always just had a real fondness for that movie. And I really liked how clean cut it was. So each movie kind of has has something that I think is a, a little bit newer, different than the other films in the book. Now, one of the things I really like about the book is you've you've I'm not a screenwriter. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're a screenwriter and I've learned so much just, you know, just reading this book. And now when I'm watching movies, I'm looking for things like the inciting incident. And can you, <laughs> can you, can you sort of explain how you've broken down, you know, you've broken them into acts, into sequences, and then into inciting incidents and, 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 and without really going into the exorcist, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but just, you know, is that something that was, is that something you came up with or is that something that's sort of known in screenwriting? Like this is how you within within each act, there has to be an inciting incident. There has to be a particular thing that moves the story forward. 
Yeah, I mean, I probably, I guess I started reading, you know, screenwriting books maybe when I was 18. And I think maybe the first one was this, you know, Sid Field, The Basic. And I think Inciting Incident is one of his things. It's been so long since I, you know, I don't want to talk about how long it's been since I was 18. But um, <laughs> but uh, it, that The Inciting Incident is one people tend to, they seem to have held on to that one, even as all the new you know, perspectives on screenwriting come out. People tend to, that one hasn't been thrown out. Climax and inciting incident haven't been thrown out. That's kind of a term that everyone uses. I think maybe plot point one and two might also be Sid Field things, but I don't hold me to that. But basically they're just the start and end of the second act. Uh, and people call those different things, depending if you're reading Save the Cat, if you're reading some other book, they're probably going to call that something else. But there are those points. There are all those. They're kind of like um, toll booths or something. <laughs> you know, the inciting incident, plot point one, you know, the pinch is something that not everyone knows about or talks about. Uh, and they may call it different things, too. But it's the same kind of thing. It's another toll booth. Um, in like the second quadrant of a film or a script that's just gathering your your senses about where we've been and where we're going, getting everyone on the same page before you go into the next kind of mission. Um, so yeah, those, I mean, I the thing I, I guess I want to stress is that not everyone thinks about scripts the same way or, you know, there can be Oscar winning screenwriters who don't know anything about structure. They just feel it out. You know, in the same way that there are maybe musicians who just feel what's right. Um, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I like to understand and, um, you know, be able to reproduce something on command. Uh, I don't like to have to rely on the muse all the time and my objectivity. When you're writing uh, one of your screenplays, you do an outline. I mean, do you do you have the the pinch, the inciting incident? Do you have those figured out before you start writing? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So that's okay. um, I didn't used to when I would flail and scripts would take me, you know, a year or so to do. Um, I did not. I, I used to really struggle with the outline process. And I think a lot of writers do, because I think what's hard for people to understand is that even though there are so many screenwriting books, there is no textbook that is this is how it's done. Definitely. And everyone does it this way. That doesn't exist. So and there's no there's no rule about this is what an outline has to be. And everyone knows this is what an outline is. Like for instance, when I'm hired to do a script, they'll say, you know, a, an outline might be contractual, but they'll say in whatever form you do it, you know, nobody has the same um, method for doing this kind of thing. But now ever since I have, you know, come up with this system that works for me. Yeah. I always have those things in. And then once you're in the script, things adjust slightly, but they don't, you know, fly around like in a hurricane, like they used to when I would write and things would drastically be thrown to this end of the script and this end of the script. And I would just be searching and like drowning in my little scraps of paper notes all the time. Like now I just sort it out at the outline stage. Gotcha. Okay. Excellent. I think we could do a whole episode just talking about screenwriting and because it, it's for the lack of a better term, lack of a better term, it's, it's very diverse in how people write, yeah. and how people screenwrite. So as the listeners have already heard, we, t I've talked a little bit about the, the history of the exorcist, you know, you know, where the book, where the author got sort of the inspiration from and, and, and how popular the book was. And, and 
I, you know, I, I, I wanted, I took the listeners to a time in 1973 when, you know, a movie like this was a cultural phenomenon that, uh, I think, and don't quote me listeners, but I believe up until the release of Deadpool, I think adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist was the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. And I think at one point it was right up there with some of the highest grossing films of all time in the 70s. Before we sort of get into the actual screenplay and, and the script for The Exorcist, I just, of course, have to ask you, how were you introduced to the film? What were your reactions the first time you saw the movie? Gosh, I mean, I don't even know how old I was. I was probably around... 13 or something there was a period of time when tbs was playing it all the time on tv and um i i don't remember why exactly that was but i used to be so scared of the commercials and i would see her face and i would get so angry that you can't just put that up on the tv when you know i'm watching something that's you know not horrific you can't just expose people to that because it was so scary to me her face um, in the, you know, demon makeup. And, and I feel like I had a couple of false starts with The Exorcist where I would start trying to watch it and either I would think it was too boring in the beginning because I would not get to the, you know, craziness or too mature, you know, for that age yet. Or then once I got to the crazy, scary stuff, too scary. So it, it took me several times before I was finally able to make it through The Exorcist. And when I did, I mean, I was just traumatized by the by Linda Blair in it. Basically, that was the part, you know, Karis and her mom and all the, you know, all the other stuff. I didn't really care. It was just like she was so scary as the demon. Um, and me being a girl about that age when I was trying to watch it, it was very scary. But uh, then when I finally, you know, was a little bit more mature, I didn't fully understand why it was so many horror fans favorite horror movie because of that slow start in the beginning. And so it, it really, it was a process for me coming to the exorcist and realizing how great it was. You touched on something that I wanted to, wanted to talk about just for a moment. And that is the difference between not just horror movies, but movies in general that are released in 2018 or the two thousands and maybe even the late nineties versus movies that were released in the in the seventies. I use mm-hmm. the, I use The Godfather as an example. That opening, the wedding, that goes on for, a, for almost forty minutes. You know, movies back then they really they were a slow burn. And, mm-hmm. and and you know, would you would you argue the point that character development in the seventies was far superior to character development in most modern films that come out today? I mean, I think I think there's so many aspects to that because I think that acting was different then too and the emphasis on actors and i mean even though it wasn't kind of the the 1950s era of you know method acting and i mean the godfather was brando but you know it was still like the generation that had grown up on that and acting was just a very different thing and so much was so much emphasis was just on behavior and now we don't have that as much Um, and i think part of that is because of the changes in the way films are produced. One being that you don't have rehearsal time and you don't have, I mean, most movies at a not enormous budgetary level are about 25 days to shoot now. And they used to have months 
and they would work out scenes and work out every beat and the actors could kind of find new angles. And, you know, the directors, even in other non-actor driven scenes could take their time and explore. And you just don't have that anymore. It's a huge change in the industry. It really is. Let's talk about The Exorcist. If you were to explain this movie to somebody who's never seen it before, how would you explain this movie? Well, I think actually make uh, writing this book, I think I figured it out finally what it is in the way like the access point for people. I mean, I kind of don't want to tell them so that they can find it for themselves. But really, I mean, it took me many years and many, many viewings to get there. So I'm just going to say it. But I think you have to look at this film as a possessed thing. I think that's Friedkin's angle or Blatty or the two of them together or whatever, that you don't look at it as a story, an objective point of view or anything. You have to look at the film itself as cursed. And when you look at it like that, suddenly everything makes sense. Like if you look at this film as being possessed by a demon in the beginning, it takes you a long time to accept that anything's definitely wrong. You know, you just know something's not quite right, but like it'll sort itself out. It'll get, you know, it, like you kind of ignore a few things that are odd and why it's, t you know, but I think that's why it takes so long to get going is because it's, it's that early stage of possession where it's just a couple oddities. You know, there are just some things that is that are a little off about the movie. So that that would be my access point is just look at it like that when you start watching it. And so that you take your time getting to the stuff that is the obvious demon possession part. That's really interesting. Can we talk about this opening scene in, in <laughs> that takes part takes place in Iraq with almost no dialogue? Yeah, when you're writing when you're writing uh, you, you in, in your book, sequence one, it says, at an archaeological dig in northern Iraq, a local boy runs to tell Father Mirren that they found some little pieces. Mm -hmm. And this, I think this will be, I think for anyone that's watching this movie for the first time, this scene will be a little bit jarring because it really has no... Oh, I used to think it was so boring. Tell me. As a, you know, as a kid, wanting just the thrills, I was like, what is this? Now, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the film. How, how do you explain this scene now, having seen it? So haven't seen the movie many, many times. I mean, I'll be honest, the film doesn't get a ton clearer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, again, like, if you stick with my theory about the possession, like, I found some little pieces. I think that's what we're doing in the beginning of the film. You're finding little, you know, discoveries, little, you know, artifacts of the de of the demon. And I, you know, I, I'm honestly, I mean, they find the little, I don't, they don't even say Pazuzu in this movie. Do they? I don't think so. No, it's they, that's only later in in part two. But yeah, you find that like this little demon, and I think you kind of make these. You have to make these subconscious connections in your mind that, that you know there are these religious, you know, pieces, and that that is a demon, and that that is the demon that is affecting this girl, and that has somehow drawn Marin in and orchestrated this whole thing. But none of that is said. It's all inferred. You just have to kind of sense it. Like, you're not going to get an explanation. And I think that's, you know, maybe the case in real life exorcism. You know, you don't know exactly what was real, what caused what. You, you don't get to know. You know, Father Marin, too, you were saying that he doesn't have, you know, any dialogue in that beginning part. And even when he shows up, he shows up at the end of the second act, which is really quite late i mean even even for other movies where people think oh what a late introduction for someone 
usually it's not that that late. It's usually like a plot point before that. And when he shows up, you still don't learn about him. He still doesn't say all that much that aren't the um, exorcism rites. But he feels like this heavy, huge character purely because of the setup and payoff. Like what I found is the further apart you put a setup and a payoff, the bigger the impact it has. If you put them fairly close together, it's like, uh uh-huh, right? But if it's huge, they feel like the audience feels rewarded that they remembered that thing from the very beginning. And so Father Marin, without really doing anything or needing all of this talk about his background, you know, or or whatever, he feels like this massive, important character, mentor character, even though he doesn't actually deliver those things to you, just purely because of the structure and the timing. Let's talk about what you have listed as the first inciting incident in the film. So Chris and Father yeah. Paris notice each other in the city. So, so we, we, yeah. we, what we're doing is we're going to just go kind of go through the film. We're not going to go through every sequence, every scene, but just sort mm-hmm. of some notable ones here. So after the scene in the Iraq desert, we're introduced to Chris McNeil. She's an actress working in Georgetown. Uh, she's working on a film. You have been been on film sets. It seems it, it just seems like a very chaotic. Yeah, very chaotic. I mean, granted that was the old school way. <laughs> it's not usually. Um, you know, you don't see that many movies. That must have been a very big movie in this era, you know, that could actually shut down a street like that. But um, so we're 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 to we're led to believe that she's a she's a very famous actress, or at least for that mm-hmm. time period. So yeah. she's so- Reagan refers to her being on a magazine and like a bad picture. So she's big enough to be in the tabloids. You list the first inciting incident is Chris and Father Karras know each other, notice each other in the city. Yeah, which is. So mild. I would never call that an inciting incident in a normal movie. Time-wise, that is what it is. I do all of my structure by time. And because I think when you get into the definitions of what things are, it really confuses people. The other screenwriting books I had read, I felt like confused everyone and everyone took different things away and would get all caught up on technicalities. And I kind of break it down to just what happens about 10 to 15 minutes in what's the thing that's going the what's the big thing that changed just then and the thing that changes just then is that they notice each other which in a normal movie a common thing that would happen is those two big characters would meet here they don't actually meet they just see each other and in like that that kind of just or explains how much this movie does things differently it's not going to come out and let them meet and, oh, you know, I'm a big fan and what do you do? And I'm, you know, a psychological counselor at the church. Like, this movie doesn't do any of that. They just lock eyes because it's all kind of a psychological, spiritual connection that everybody has. Okay. Going on, sorry, give me a it does feel like it goes on, you know, on and on without anything happening, even though technically something did happen just then. Let's talk about the first introduction of Regan. When, you know, with the relationship she has with her mother, uh, now this is, you know, this is a, a very famous actress with her daughter. What kind of, I mean, are we, are we sort of setting up what type of world that Regan lives in? What, what her reality is like? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of fascinated by, by their relationship because I feel like a lot is made of, in horror movies in general about there being like, that was one of the first things I learned about horror movie plots is that there's usually something wrong in the family, you know, that no one's acknowledging. And that's what makes them susceptible to the bad things that are going to happen. And it's kind of confusing in this film because they seem to have such a good relationship. 
you know, like they seem to be playing and happy together and like best of friends. And that goes against all conventional horror movie rules, except this movie is sort of one of the, you know, (laughs) we, it's interesting because we look at those sort of the later films that will come out, the, the, the slasher films and, and all that stuff. But I mean, do we, is there, is there a precedent before the exorcist that you can recall where we, we sort of have to look at the parents? Um, I mean, the, it's not before The Exorcist. The one I I think maybe made me aware of that was Nightmare on Elm Street, sure. you know, um, that clearly the mom had a drinking problem and all that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I would put this, I, well, it's a little bit different. It's not demon possession or anything, but I would put Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen all kind of together, even though Rosemary's Baby was 68, this was 73 Right. And then the Omen of 76. But they're all, you know, Satan, Satanism stuff. And in Rosemary's Baby, it's definitely like that, where Guy and Rosemary are kind of skipping along, happy couple. But really underneath it, Guy is only obsessed with his own career and himself and he'll sell her out in a second. So I would kind of I I guess I would sort and it becomes a family film, you know, with the baby. (laughs) Um, But uh, I I might use that as a. A reference, like a precedent? With Father Karras, we are first introduced to him when we see him on set just sort of watching the film being made. Uh, you, you, again, we go back to the inciting incident where they, where Chris and Father Karras notice each other. We get Chris walking back home, you know, spending some time with Regan, and then we sort of cut to what Father Karras's sort of existence or what his life is like riding on the subway. Where do you see this character, or what What are your first impressions of, of this character? I mean, Father Karras, I think, is... Again, because I didn't see this movie when it came out. I wasn't born yet. Um, I had seen sort of copycat priests having a um, crisis of faith after this that were all probably inspired by Father Karras. So it's one of those things. It's a little hard to wrap your head around how he would have seemed at the time. But I mean, he's just he just strikes me as very depressed. His whole situation with his mom, I find to be just the most confusing thing in the movie. Because I can't, I really can't tell what's happening when, exact chronologically, I can't really tell. And I know in his head, it's all kind of blended together. And I can't necessarily tell that what we see did happen even. Or if that's just kind of how he's thinking about it. And like something I say in the analysis in the book is that you know, the demon lies to confuse you, but so does the movie. Yeah. And so I don't necessarily trust what we're seeing of Father Karras's life. And I think because he's a, he's like the psychological counselor at the church, I think he lives very much in his head. And so I think with him, we're seeing a, some mental pictures, not necessarily, you know, factual, physical things that happened. It's still in this first act. We see Reagan playing with the Ouija board. I have a couple questions for you on this one. One, mm-hmm. did you have a Ouija board? Any experience no, with one of those? No. No. I no. <laughs> still never used one. I never will. I will say that my sisters had a Ouija board. You know, and it was one of those ones that they bought at a toy store. I remember. Yeah, I, was- I couldn't believe when I found out that was a real thing and you could just buy them in the store and that was, it was like Clue. You know, or Battleship. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. No, I've never played with one. If one was in a house that I was in, I would leave. Oh, okay. So, okay. Fair enough. And I don't even know how much I believe. I just, you know, I've got enough problems. Sure. I don't need that in my life. 
Just in case. Every once in a while when things go wrong for me, you know, I always go, I always kind of go back, you know, when I was 12 years old and my sisters introduced me to that Ouija board. Now I'm just, but no, but no. Um, but what I found really interesting here, and again, this book, your book, it really, it taught me to look at this movie in a completely different way. And I'm so appreciative of this. Well, by the way, you're going to get high praise throughout this episode. Because oh, I love it. we sort of wrap up the first act with, you know, Father Karras is having the issues with his mother. You know, he, he basically says that he should have never left her, basically announces that he's lost his faith. And so by the end of act one, this is what we've established. And what you've been able to explain to me, it's been perfect in this book, is that, you know, Reagan plays with a Ouija board. You know, Father Karras has lost his faith. We've had, you know, the introduction of Father Mirren. You know, all the characters have been introduced. Yet... Mm-hmm. In the entire first act, nothing out of a supernatural element has happened. Yeah, this is the first. When that planchet moves on its own, that's the yep. only thing I've seen. And then the weird, you know, are there rats in the house? Which that yep. was always kind of strange to me, too. You know, that's another one of those things where there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. Maybe they do have rats, but you can't find rats, you know? I mean, not to be too gross, but like we've been having a flea problem around my house and getting like flea medication on all the animals, but you're like, but I haven't seen any fleas, you know? And it's, it's one of those things. Like there's not necessarily anything evil or wrong about that. It's just, you know, a domestic mystery. And and this will go back to, you know, a, a theme throughout this conversation that, you know, a first time viewer of The Exorcist, I, I'm going to use this as a perfect example. One of my coworkers, he's, he's in his, I'd say he's about 25, 26 years old, never seen the movie, heard of it. I've been sort of t- kind of pushing him to, to watch the movie. So, you know, you really need to see this movie. It's, it's a, it's a, a American classic. And, you know, I don't, I certainly don't want to spoil anything about the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm watching this because I watched this again last night. Uh, by the way, not great viewing at midnight. You know, <laughs> no. when it, you know, but but um, no, it's morning viewing. It with really like is. A nice window glare on your TV. Yes. But I'm I'm watching the first act and I'm going. This movie will, I think, you, the younger generation, even our generation, because we're we're the Elm Street generation. I like to say, mm-hmm. um, the last of the Elm Street children. That's, exactly, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So this, the younger generation, our generation who haven't seen this movie, they're going to say that this first act is boring. Yeah. And it's, I, I, and I think I watch movies a little bit differently. I try to watch movies a little bit differently. I think I am, I'm very much into character development. I'm very much into getting to know who people are, taking in every visual that's on screen. But I'm also at the same time cognizant of the fact that this is a movie where your patience will pay off. I believe that. Well, and I think that this movie, I mean, again, getting back to how differently movies used to be made, I think part of it is who was making them was different than who makes them now. We had a lot fewer filmmakers than we do now. And they were maybe called to it for different reasons. The executives were there for different reasons. There were fewer executives. You know, it's just different. Everything about it was different. And I think that something, you know, in real art of any kind, the form is also the content. And now we usually think about, you know, stories as, well, it's a story and here's what the story's about. But in, or, or well, it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm Woody Allen would roll his eyes, um, you know, but the medium is the message. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in this movie, 
you know, I think the lesson is when you think nothing is going on and you think you can ignore things and things are boring in our everyday life, you're just not paying attention. Exactly. You know, there is other stuff going on. And I think that's, you know, we don't do things like that anymore in movies. <laughs> that's just not, it's just not how people think about it anymore. I wish they did, but to do it at a big level with the resources, big theatrical release, big actors and big money, it's everything's much more just classical and traditional and not as experimental. With classic storytelling in the three act structure, and correct me if I'm wrong because this is just me. I'm I'm just a simple movie watcher who enjoys watching film, but I'm very hungry to learn more about the the writing process. But in a, in, a, in a classic three-act structure, act two introduces the conflict. Is that correct? Yeah, it's like the main problem or the main conflict. I mean, that's why people get kind of confused because the inciting incident is like where things start to change in their world. But, but act two is this is the main deal, trying to catch the shark or whatever. Gotcha. So the main thing is there is something supernatural here. Like the planship moves, Captain, she's been talking to Captain Howdy. That's the main story of act two. Again, you, you, you talk about the relationship between Father Karras and his mother. I mean, there, is, there, is there parallel plot points going on here? Or is this just more to sort of just pound it in our head that he's just so conflicted in his beliefs? Yeah, I mean, because here I have that, you know, that he admits he's lost his faith. And I think if I dived in deeper, like in this book, I've limited myself to two pages to talk about each of these things, because that's not really, it's not a book on the exorcist. And it's not a book on horror. It's, you know, a, supposed to be primarily a reference book. But if I dug in deeper, I think I would probably see these characters, Marin and Chris McNeil and Father Karras and Reagan as somewhat psychically like sharing psychic space a little bit like Chris McNeil and her daughter and father Karras and his mother that there's something similar there and that maybe even when something happens to him it's a vulnerability for them even though they don't know each other because they are somehow like linked by destiny if that makes sense i mean in normal movies i would not say that but in this movie that's kind of the territory that we're in you know i wouldn't be surprised if you know they thought about things that way in sequence 30 you listed that a priest finds church icons defaced and sexualized now is this if as the viewer are we just supposed to say that this is just you know the the modern reality of how people feel about the Catholic Church in the night early 1970s, or are we to believe that this is the the possession, the demon, the Pazuzu, if you will, that that's done this? What do you think? I mean, I actually, I did, I looked up briefly yesterday the thing about Reagan's little clay sculptures, you know, that like Kinderman finds one of those and, and is one, you know, try, when he's trying to solve the murder mm. um, and how they might be linked to, well, I wanted to find out like, was it anything resembling Pazuzu, you know, or well, the demon. Um, and uh, I kind of stumbled onto like all the differences between the movie and the book. And it seems like this defacing of the icons in the church was a much bigger thing in the book. So I'm not sure exactly what was initially intended by it. But I kind of look at the defacing of the church iconography, Karis's lack of faith, you know, the little bit of domestic disturbance of Chris McNeil's 
situation with her ex, you know, who's not like coming to Reagan's birthday party, like all of these things as just vulnerabilities that kind of attract the demon and like weaken the defenses so that it can sneak in. You know, like like that it's the place itself, Georgetown itself, that this has happened. Maybe there's just a weakness there at, in, you know, in terms of faith at this particular moment. Kelly, for those who don't know, explain what a pinch is in writing. Um, basically, it is it, I look at each of the sections of the script as a quarter. You know, I just split the script in two and split each of those halves in two. But then I split each of those halves in two, <laughs> basically. Um, so each quarter is two sequences and the pinch is right in between. It's just it's not a full on act break. It's just kind of a little, you know, midpoint in the middle of the quarter. And so it's it's not as big as a plot point because it's not ending, you know, the the second act plot or starting it or anything like that. But it's still a big turn. And so here it's where the bed starts shaking and they see it like clearly something supernatural or otherwise is seriously wrong here. That's kind of late, you know, but in this era of filmmaking, it's the pinch was kind of a popular point to have stuff start actually kicking into gear. In this particular screenplay is that Chris knows there's something seriously wrong with Reagan when her bed shakes and jumps on its own. Mm-hmm. That's the- like, for instance, in Rosemary's Baby, that's where the the dream rape happens. Right. So yeah. it's in this period that was kind of a little bit customary. Okay. All right. Excellent. So this is when things really take a turn in the movie. <laughs> Basically, this is like this is the part where we when it starts. <laughs> we we have we have we as the audience, we as the viewer, we know because we're watching. We know the title of the movie. We know what's going on. Well, we we know that something diabolical is going right. to happen. But this is the point when the reality sinks in for one of our main protagonists, one of our main characters. After this pinch is, I think the movie that most people refer to when they think of the exorcist. I think mm-hmm. at, this is, this is the turning point for the viewer as well in that the, when everybody talks about all the most infamous scenes in the film, all of that happens after this, or this, this is the, everything before this has really just been the setup. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Disagree? Yeah. I mean, I would also say I didn't write it cause it, you know, I don't want to go on and on, but there are these constant intercutting stories between Reagan and Chris's story and then Father Karras's story. And what happened in his story right before this happened off screen, but his mom died. Yeah. And so another big point right before the pinch, which it's not quite big enough because it doesn't it doesn't definitively make Chris know like, oh, crap, I've got to get her help. Um, but. Uh, it's where Reagan goes downstairs and like it acts really weird at that cocktail party and pees on the carpet in front of everybody and tells the astronaut he's going to die. You know, that was like kicking into gear right before this happened. You know, that was always kind of one of the scariest scenes to me was like, what a, you know, terrifying thing to have happened. And yet it's the sort of thing, like maybe if someone had a sleep disorder or it's a, the kind of thing maybe a pet would do, you know, and then you just get it to the doctor, but it's, it's pretty weird and creepy. And, and a lot of things right before this bed incident happen off screen. Like we learned father Karras's mom died because people at the cocktail party are talking about it. And also at that cocktail party is, you know, 
the Reagan thing. And then Chris tells her in bed, you know, the doctors say, I forget what she says, that it's nerves, you know, so she has already been to a doctor, but we didn't see it. It was off screen. So it's, it's a very funky little period of time right before this, too. It, it was starting to get good, basically. Now, what I found interesting about, you know, after the bed shaking scene is, you know, Chris realizes that something needs to be done. And, you know, Reagan goes in through a whole series of what at the time would have been modern day medical tests. Mm-hmm. You know, and I love the fact that they're, they're, they're sort of this checklist of, you know, we, well, it could be this, it could be that. And they're going to go through every aspect of it before they even begin to mm-hmm. speculate on what the reality is. And I just love that the movie sort of takes its time going through that process. Well, and that was one of the scariest parts to me, too, when I first watched the movie, um, or the first several times I watched the movie, is just, oh, gosh, it just seemed so terrifying, that huge needle you know, the like clackety, 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 you know, thing of like the MRIs and all the tests that they're doing on her seemed sort of just as violating as what was happening to her. You know, it was the physical violation, whereas the demon is more of like a spiritual violation. And I kind of, that's something that I like in horror movies too, is when it will get into everyday horrors that aren't the main point, but just kind of, touch on horrors that are all around us. And it, it really taps into that fear of doctors who really don't know what they're doing. They're just trying stuff <laughs> and like scary medical procedures. So yeah, even though there aren't new demonic scares, there's still scares of a different nature. Like basically you don't feel safe anywhere. Like her going to the doctor doesn't make you feel more safe for her. You know, you feel more kind of, Oh gosh, get her away from those people. It's like when Nancy went to the sleep disorder critic uh, clinic yeah. in the first film, in the first Elm Street film. I mean, that was fairly civilized, but sure. yeah, but still, <laughs> um, you know, they send her in and, and it's like, no, don't put her to sleep. You don't know what you're doing. Well, it just, it's, it's interesting because every, every little process keeps leading to what's the inevitable. Bring us to the midpoint of the movie. So the midpoint is, you know, basically we get to where we knew we were going to get when we decided to watch The Exorcist, which is the doctors suggest an exorcism. So that's the first time that is mentioned as an option or of what might be happening here. And at the same time, uh, often at, at midpoints, not always, but somebody dies. Here it's when Burke, you know, has fallen out of Reagan's window, we think, um, except the, that the cop thinks that, you know, was it just a fall? Because his head was turned completely around backwards. And so it becomes more like you learn that the demon is actually dangerous to more than just Reagan. You know, first of all, that it, it could be a demon. And secondly, that it could kill people. And that's usually like the midpoint is usually where you learn what the monster actually is, or at least how dangerous it is. What would be the midpoint in the first Elm Street film? Would that be when Nancy is brought downstairs? into the basement to talk to the to talk to her mom um no, no. Uh, it's the midpoint is uh it's when it's the dream clinic okay okay so we were right we're close to that okay yeah so the midpoint is exactly so and that's the funny thing is the midpoint of elm street is when she wakes up with freddy krueger's hat that ha- so she brought that out of the dream and it's got his name in it you know um so it's where she learns he is an actual person with an actual name um, and it's, just, you know, so similar to this, it is a demon and it kills people. It's, a, um, it's kind of learning a little bit about the monster's identity. 
this is the point in the film where we all as the viewer, because like you said, we, we all decided to watch The Exorcist. It's where the sort of the reality is really setting in for everybody involved. So, yeah, well, and, and again, like the, the way I can look things like that up or Rosemary's Baby up, that's the point of this book is <laughs> so that you can compare it to other films and see, you know, okay, at this point of that film, and it's not by, like, you can't take any film and say, what happens at minute 40? Because a film that's two and a half hours isn't going to have the same minute 40 as a film that's 88 minutes. Sure. It's the middle is what it is. That's why I kind of break it down into fractions, basically. By doing the eight sequences, it's kind of breaking it into just eight. So it's not exactly about minute. It's that percentage that you are into the film. But you can very quickly go back between different films and say, oh, well, this one is just like this one is just like this one. And you kind of get to how much all of the classic films are watching each other. You know, all of the classic films that came before when they're le- when they're writing their script, they're going back and looking at the old ones and like, how did they pull it off? You know, you'll see like with Poltergeist, it takes a lot from the Changeling and, you know, just different other films. And The Exorcist is certainly one. Rosemary's Baby is certainly one that a lot of them you'll see parallels because they've borrowed from it. Okay. So Act 2, Part 2, Sequence 5. This is when we started getting into some of the, dare I say, the uh, holy shit moments of the movie. Yeah. Again, spoilers for anybody that hasn't seen the movie, but we've been talking for cl- almost close to an hour. So if I'm hoping that that you have stopped listening and you're actually that watching the film. That would be the, the midpoint of the movie. Yes. <laughs> so we're yeah, we're in there. Um, this is this is sort of bringing some of the characters together. You get the detective comes to the house. You know he's he's investigating Burke's death, suspicious death, as you put it, and uh, with the with the head turned all the way around. I'm wondering. Perfectly normal. Perfectly normal happens all the time. I'm told. <laughs> so the um. That has always made me ask the question about there. Let's talk about uh, how do I dance around this issue? There's let's talk about the part with with the the head spin. Is that mm-hmm. and if, are we just basically because at that point we know Burke's head's been turned all the way around where has been turned around backwards. Right. And I've always wondered, I've always sort of wondered if that's just sort of, uh, you know, a, a wink and a nod to the audience like this is exactly what I'm capable of doing. Let me show you. The demons basically mm-hmm. say, let me show you exactly yeah. what I can do. Well, and I, I mean, that moment, obviously, it's very scary. But I have kind of wondered, like, how is that? Po- that's not possible. You know, <laughs> I mean, she wouldn't still, you wouldn't still have a body to possess if he turned her head all the way, you know, completely around, um, you know, anatomically, it couldn't work. Because um, her spine would be broken. But I, I do think. I think there's like another little motif to do with the demon lies to confuse us. And I think some of these things it does are sort of playing tricks with your mind, you know? So, so you can kind of say, well, maybe it made me think it turned its head all the way around, you know, or something like that. And, uh, I think it kind of like the demon pretends to be things that it's not like it's pretending to be Reagan. It's maybe even pretending to be a demon or, or Satan or something, you know, it's always, pretending to be things which i think kind of like plays into chris being an actress and so i'm not necessarily sure going back to like the domestic situation i'm not sure how much you can trust the happiness of the domestic situation either because chris seems to be i mean it's a little off topic from where we were but chris seems to be so happy-go-lucky with reagan but when she's out of the room with reagan she's like 
reaming her ex out on the phone. You know, so maybe Chris isn't exactly what she seems to be either. Like maybe none of them really are exactly what they seem to be. The second pinch that you've listed in here is that Chris brings in Father Karras to examine Reagan. So finally, we're getting a man of faith. We've been waiting for this. We've been kind of saying, okay, listen, she's gone to the hospital. She's done all these tests. They've said, you know, she's seen a psychiatrist and, and, and all these things. And we're, we as the viewer are like, all right, we, we know the reality. So finally, we're going to get our first kind of standoff as the way I saw it the first time I saw Mm -hmm. the movie. But before I get to that, I have to ask you a question because the version I watched last night was the, director's cut that had been that was theatric i think re-released in 2000 theatrically and yeah it was i haven't revisited that one recently but i vaguely remember some of the differences so i did see it in the theater when it was released the question i have and maybe the listeners can help me out or maybe you know the answer to this because when i was watching this film and i would love to get my hands on on an original theatrical cut of it um but when i was watching the Mm -hmm. films there was a lot of subliminal stuff happening on the screen. Mm-hmm. There was there was images yeah. images that were appearing for an instant for just for just for a moment. And I, again, I, I stress mm-hmm. that was freaking me the fuck out last night when I was watching yeah. that. And I'm I, I I for the life of me don't know if that was something that was in the director's cut or if that is in the theatrical cut of the film. Those little I images. Think it's, that- it's in the regular cut too. It's because it's um that was. Like it's uh, it's in the way that the story is told. It's in the sound design. It's in the image design. So I think it, it's always been there. Like, and again, it has to do with the demon lies, you know, to confuse us, not to keep saying it. But you, in this film, being a possessed thing, like this film is a little not up and up. You know, it, like it's pretending to be this one thing, but there's all the other stuff underneath it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that was just a little side note. I was just, I was just wondering if that was something because it was, uh, listen again, listeners, I, I stress to you, don't watch this movie at midnight. Not, not alone in the dark. Uh, not since, not since the original Elm Street was I, was I really struggling last night. So, um, the second well, thing. Pitch- I'm not sure exactly why, you know, it, like, are we afraid we're going to be possessed? You know, I'm not sure what it is that makes it so scary because it's not like you know I've, I've been watching a lot of halloweens lately and you know the guy can break in your house and he can come kill you but a demon i don't when, i mean demon movies scare me but i don't necessarily think i'm going to be possessed you know I, so i'm not exactly sure how they get you so and, and i'm not like from a strongly religious background that that has a basis in that so i'm not sure exactly why they're so creepy that's a good point. No, no, no. Well, I'll say this. Effective filmmaking was on display last night when I was watching that film. Yeah. <laughs> Very effective. Uh, again, so we'll, we, we just talked about sort of this, the, the second pinch is we finally have the, the, the confrontation, the, the initial confrontation between Father Karras and, and Regan or, or Pazuzu. We're going to keep saying the name Pazuzu because that is referenced. Hello, Regan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. 
Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now, kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Show me Reagan and I'll loosen one of the straps. And you're helping all all the boy, father. Your mother's in here with his cash. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. What is it? What is it? Father Karras, it's been established uh, that he has lost his faith, which is an interesting dichotomy from the fact that this movie is showing us so many supernatural elements that are happening. Right. And we've been waiting for this moment for where, you know, a man of faith, who, who you've mentioned has lost his faith. My question is, through his initial interactions with Reagan, do we feel like that he is kind of having that moment where he's like, okay, this stuff is real? And, you know, there's a, there's that scene where, you know, he, he uses holy water, but it's not really holy water. So I guess mm-hmm. yeah, the question is, is this, is this the turning point for his character? Do you feel it's the turning point? I do. I mean, I feel like he, this is an interesting section, even for me, because you sort of feel like when he's disproving little things, you're like, well, is she not possessed? You know, like he makes you doubt and you're like, no, I know she's possessed. (laughs) Come on. Um, But I still think that he, you know, he's looking for excuses not to believe. And I don't think he believes until the very end when he is actually possessed himself, because then he knows it's real. Yeah. You know, like what, I mean, I don't think 100%, I don't think he believes until it's in him. And the second it's in him, it's like it's only there a second and then it comes over his face and then it's gone. You know, he's going to like kill Reagan because the demon's in him. And I feel like in a way, it's almost like you can see a light coming on in him, like that his faith is back. Like if this has happened to him, then it's real. And suddenly he does believe and he casts it out immediately and jumps out the window. You know, like, I, even though it's such a tiny moment, I feel like that's what's happening there. And, it's, it's, and that's why it's the climax of the movie is because he gets his faith back. And it's interesting to just to, to, to touch on, you know, he does all these little things to disprove. But it also, in a way, is, is attempting to disprove to us as well. Like, hold on a second. There's an explanation for everything. Yeah. Although, you know, the point that he brings up that I always found kind of strange was, um, you know, when he listens to the recording of Reagan, you know, about her speaking in tongues and he's like, it was English backwards. Like, oh, she doesn't know another language. It's English backwards. And I always felt like that's hard. How does she know how to speak English backwards? <laughs> you know, like uh, I, that didn't disprove anything to me. You get the scene where you see Reagan's stomach. Help me is written from the inside, mm-hmm. which is 
which is, by the way, it's it is it is tyrannically gross. But um, it was when watching that last night, I was like, oh, so that's where Chuck Russell got the inspiration, right? In Elm Street Three. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, because it'd been a few years since the, I'd seen. Yeah, they're all taking from each other. They, they, they really do. I've noticed that. So, but even in that, you know, who I was bringing up before, like about all of these people being kind of spiritually connected. I do feel like there is, you know, even though Reagan is saying "help me," I feel like all of the characters, kind of inside the thing that they're not saying, like the them that is deep down underneath, like the act they're putting out in public is like help me like father Karis wants help you know finding his faith chris wants help like with her daughter and her life you know like all of them want help and i feel like that's what father Marin is when he comes in it's like this guy's done it before he's gonna help us and he doesn't you know i mean he, he you know he tries but um but that's actually like something i mentioned in my book and it's a common you know screenwriting thing is the hero's journey and the very basic idea behind that is that the hero becomes the hero when he realizes he can only rely on himself. You know, and that's like, even though this movie is completely untraditional in so many ways, I do think that as it gets closer to the end, that it gets back on track with the normal hero's journey thing. And that that's like, they are father Karis learns, like he has to step up and be the, one who saves the day like you can't be feeling guilty about your mom and that you're not a good enough priest and blah 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 the problems in the world like he did save this girl that's an interesting question before we don't jump into act three who is the protagonist of this movie i think it's him okay i think it's karis i mean it's you know it's certainly a bizarre design but because he's the one that has that moment I think it's him. But again, in the way that I said that they're all spiritually connected, they're all kind of the protagonist, like sharing duties, you know, handing it off to each other. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the one who gets the big moment and the one who's having that big character arc is Karis. Gotcha. Okay. From like, I don't have my faith. Now I have my faith. So act two ends with, as you write, the church authorizes the exorcism and suggests Father Marin. And that brings us to act three, mm-hmm. which uh, which you, you put it perfectly earlier that he's introduced in this 10 minute sequence at the beginning of the film, not referred to again through almost the first two acts of the film. Mm-hmm. And then he shows up. And of course, for everybody who the iconic you know, one shot of the movie, the screen, the, the movie poster is that uh, amazing shot of him with the hat, you know, with the street right. lamp looking up at the house. And uh, we get that scene. And th- this is when I think that, like you said, the film becomes a little bit more conventional in its storytelling, mm-hmm. because at this point, all the cards have been laid out. We as the viewer know what has to be done. And it sort of just unfolds. And it's it's a it's a bit of a thrill ride, I'll tell you. To be honest with you, it's it's very interesting yeah. and but very fast. Yes, it's just that third act. But I think too that we think Father Marin's going to do more than he does. Yeah. You know, like we think he's going to bring in the big guns and somehow like be Gandalf. You know, fighting <laughs> like it's going to be this huge, you know, Dumbledore Yoda thing, and um, you know. It, and it ends up being Marin in the end who actually manages to do it. And Marin is done away with pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he, it's know. like after all that, you know, 
Like we waited for him this whole time. And, and uh, there he goes. And I always like to say this about Max Fans, Max Fansido is I didn't realize that they had put the old man makeup on him. The, yeah, that's interesting. Not until I saw a 2002 uh, Minority Report where where he's in there opposite Tom. He plays Tom Cruise's mentor in Minority Report. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, so, okay, wait a second now. All right. He wasn't old that whole time. He wasn't that old. And then, uh, okay, so... So I th- that sweet. So that's an interesting casting choice mm-hmm. to me. To, I mean, I like, yeah. <laughs> like in uh, the Seventh Seal. You know, he's yeah. death, and then I mean, I wonder if that was why he was chosen. We've you you've touched on how this film ends with Father Karras. You know, he's ta- he says, "Take me, take me, take me," and it it wraps up rather quickly. It's amazing that uh, the the camera shot of going down the stairs. Is mm-hmm. is just absolutely amazing. So let's ask you. Let's just talk a little couple couple things about about the film. Uh, oh, I'm I'm sorry, Dana. Can I bring up one thing? Yes, please. About Father is um one point that is it, it's amazing to me. Some of the things that happen off screen mm-hmm. in this movie, or the things that would be the whole movie in another demon possession movie, like that. The fact that the end of the second act is that the church authorizes the exorcism. You know, usually in a movie, it's like the whole movie is about trying to prove to the church and deal with the bureaucracy and getting them to approve it. It's this big thing. And here, like, what what made them approve it? You know, what made them authorize it? Like, just because Chris is famous? Like, the fact that it totally happens off screen. And it's just like, okay, that's a, that's the church a, is okay with it. That's a really good point. It's almost like we we see the how the – we see it because they have to go through – Every other what could it be type of mm-hmm. thing through all the tests. So, so we as the viewer, we, we see all the, 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 the essential checklist happening. Right. So I'm, I'm but the church, like to prove it to them. Yeah. And the fact that the only person who could really tell them would be Father Marin, who doesn't a hundred percent believe himself. It's, it's just a funny thing. Like when so many movies, every demon possession movie, and there's so many of them all borrow from the exorcist and they really only borrow from those big few moments, you know, the crucifix moment and the shaking bed and then act three, you know, it's, it's really not, um, I don't, it, it's just funny how this movie is like, eh, we don't need that. We just want to focus on the spiritual aspect. We don't want to get into the bureaucracy in the church. It's just about these people. This movie in an interesting way really does subvert expectations. I think from the moment I'll tell you a funny story. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was, I want to say, eight or nine years old, my sisters are uh, four years and six years older than me, respectively. And they used to have sleepovers with their with their, with their their girlfriends. And uh, they would always go to the video store. And my very first introduction to The Exorcist, I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. But my, my sisters had came home with some VHS tapes. And my mom was sort of rummaging through the, the three cassette tapes that they had they had video, excuse me, the three VHS tapes. And one of them was the exorcist. And my mom says, how did you get this? How did you rent this? You know, cause I think my, I mean, uh-huh. I think my sisters might've been 14 or 16 years old at the time. But I remember my mom lost her shit. Yeah. And took, and took the videotape away from them. 
and said, there's no way you're going to see this. I saw this in the theater and there's no way you're going to see this. And I was really intrigued at years later. Yeah, I was of course, re- you're suddenly so interested in seeing it. <laughs> and I, I didn't see it years late till years later. And I often sometimes I'll always revisit the subject with my mom. I said, so you saw the exorcist in the theater. She just kind of puts her head down and says, I saw it in the theater. And it just, well, we'll get touch on that in just a little bit. I want to talk about sort of the audience reactions back then. But that was sort of my introduction to the film. But Well, it's kind of interesting, too, because the idea of it being this unholy thing itself, you know, that your mom would think, like, what would happen, what might happen to you? It's like the movie is a Ouija board. Exactly, you know? exactly. What might happen if you let this into your head? So that always intrigued my expectations. And, and, and for the longest time, this movie was... Uh, you know, sort of the, pardon the pun, the sort of the holy grail of, of horror movies that I needed to see. And when I finally did see it, of course, my reaction was was much different than how it is today. My expectations were all over the place and they, they were not met in a lot of different areas. And so coming back to what you said about sort of, we don't see how the church authorizes it. You know, we have, I think we always have these expectations for these for this film and it's it subverts them left and right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I, find, I find when I'm analyzing films that the things you don't understand, the parts that confuse you or seem wrong, usually have the most meaning in them because they know the obvious way to do it. They chose not to do that. So why did they choose not to do that? You know, like in, in any film, I find that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And here it was like that would make it not about the spiritual. We're sticking to the spiritual. And the spiritual is what is going on with the spirits of these people. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting film that I think is going to be discussed for another hundred years easily. Because there's- well, and, and I think the more films that are about demon possession that don't, uh, you know, that aren't as big as The Exorcist, every time someone sort of tries to do it, but like, well, it still wasn't The Exorcist. You still didn't top The Exorcist. It just makes The Exorcist stronger. It does. And that's like, what is it about that? Could... Could that movie be released as is today in 2018? Do you think it could? I don't know. I think I think it would still, I think it would still be a phenomenon if it if it was released exactly like it, exactly like it is, and people had never seen anything like it before. I still think it would be a phenomenon, and I still think it would be scandalous. I still think people would be like, "No, you can't go see that." I still think it would have the same um, impact. I do think it would be harder to get it made and get it through the studio system. Oh yeah, no, you're right. That would be very difficult. And that's yeah, that's a that's a topic for a whole nother episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that, the- well, and these like this was a major studio movie. Now, um, it, so it had a real budget, you know. And I'm not somebody who like everything has to have a huge budget, but they do feel different because it it has a seriousness to it that like we cared enough about this to give it the resources that we would give a big prestige project, and you don't see that very much with horror ever not just today but you know that's this was a period of time where like the omen was like that and rosemary's baby but um and the shining even you know but that's not always been the case no and it 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 quickly sort of went off into the sunset by by the early 80s you know i think everything i think the model for horror was you know we can make this fast and cheap and you know, and for teens, for young yeah. people, whereas they used to make like all of those films were for, you know, mature adults to understand the p- phenomenon of this film is to understand that this movie, when it came out, was 
one of the highest grossing films of all time. I mentioned earlier that adjusted for inflation, it's, I think, number two now, the highest grossing R-rated film. Everybody saw this movie. This was this this was this was a period of time when you had three channels on on the networks. You had three channels okay. on your TV. You only saw a movie by seeing it in the theater, or unless it was the ABC movie of the week. Mm-hmm. And everybody, every adult saw this. Like this was a phenomenon. And I don't know when the last time something like that has happened. Well, and I don't know. I mean. I swear, I feel like everything turns to politics. But, you know, I feel like the only thing that is like that right now is Trump and politics. Sure. That everyone is paying attention to. And I think everyone's paying attention to it partially, not just because everything about it is important, but because it's in a way very appealing to have everyone on the same page, at least focused on the same thing. Because like you said, everyone used to know all the same cultural things that were happening at the same time. And we've been so split up and scattered with so much, so many more channels, so much more music, like everyone can go their different ways. And even though like this, like political moment is always talked about in terms of dividing us in a way it has kind of united us in like just focusing on it. It's been like the first time we've all been focused on one thing in a number of years. I'm going to tell you something right now. That was absolutely brilliant what you just said there. <laughs> you know, um, God, that I've never thought about it like that. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, you, you're you're so correct that the next episode I'm doing uh, <laughs> next Sunday is actually on primary colors. Oh, that'll be interesting. Well, I one thing I wanted to bring up is that. William Friedkin is or was a documentarian. And so I feel like, you know, when you were getting to like how realistic it is and, you know, that the case was a real case and like it was really trying to make it real. And I think, you know, a lot of the modern demonic possession movies don't go that in depth with it. But I do think like him being a documentarian um, contributed deep reality to it that is part of the reason it took hold so much. But also, he's funny because he has that very, you know, realistic side. But he also has the exact opposite, which is like this, you know, dramatic flourishes, almost magical side. And I think the two of those, you know, combined is what makes it really pop. William Friedkin is a name that people that love movies and, you know, cinema lovers know that name as you know one of the greats Mm -hmm. it's not a household he's not a household name no and it's kind of a shame because he's still making movies he's still i mean he made he made that movie with mcconaughey not too long ago a couple years ago yeah Mm -hmm. i loved that movie so you know he's had quite the career you know and it's kind of a shame that he's not a household name besides you know people like ourselves that study yeah but i do think I do think he is, um, he has such an edge to him and he is such an artist and kind of unusual. He's not really going to do the mainstream stuff as much, you know? So I think that's why people haven't quite taken hold. I mean, he's not going to do a Spielberg thing or, you know, even a Scorsese kind of thing. He's, I don't know. He's always a little bit meta, a little edgier, like, a little alienating, you know, he's not the most welcoming, warm, cuddly filmmaker. 
That's what I've heard he's like in real life, too. <laughs> oh, he's a card. Yeah, yeah Jimmy's interviewed him. Um, yeah. <laughs> he has not mellowed. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. All right. So Yeah. But, but interestingly, also, John Borman, who did the sequel, was a documentarian. And there's nothing documentary-like about that film. No, either. not at all. Not at all. In fact, later on in this episode, I'm going to have Jim Hemphill on to discuss The Exorcist Part 2. I think the listeners are, I think listeners are going to really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we wrap things up, Kelly, what do you think of The Exorcist Part 2? I love it. I, I mean, it is... I enjoy, I'll be honest, watching it more than I enjoy watching the first one. I Ooh. watch, yeah, I would, I mean, just for fun, just because it's a fun movie, I think. You know, like when I watch The Exorcist 2, like I'll be going around the house going, you know, like with the thing, you know, I'm, it just sticks in your head, like all of the, um, I don't know, the images, the sounds, it's, it's a really fun movie, I think. It's so fun to look at. Yeah, I really, really enjoy it. And what do you think of the third film? Now, that's the Brad Dorif one, right? Yes. I'm not as familiar with that. However, I, I remember really liking the thing in it about, isn't it like the eyes can still see for a certain period of time yeah. after you cut off the head or something? Yeah. That really stuck with me. Um, and I found it very scary. Maybe I'll actually watch it tonight because we have the pack of the Exorcist movies. But um, yeah, they're all so different from one another. And, you know, I was very into actually into like the Rennie Harlan and Paul Schrader ones. That was so exciting to me that they're both doing those. And yet they turned out so crazy and different and still nothing like the you know, it's like none of the movies are similar to each other. Yeah, it's the craziest series. It is. It is. Well, thank you for joining me for a, a discussion about not only The Exorcist, but but this fantastic book that you've written. And it's available as of today. So I'm going to be including a link in this show's, uh, in this episode's show notes for where people can immediately get the book. And it's, it comes with the strongest recommendation. And I am beyond excited to read the, the rest of the series. Be- yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting. I mean, because it kind of reinvigorates you about like every genre when i was working in the action one i was gosh i love action movies you know and it, it it's kind of fun to see them all in one place and really like get jazzed up about that type of movie it's awesome i'm so excited and and, and when you do the what, what is the next projected release what which one is going to come out next is it going to be action i yeah it's going to be action and I am hoping I'm I'm like going for holidays, so I'm hoping it will be like by Thanksgiving. Yeah, so it should be pretty soon. Excellent. I'm going to try to get them out in a bundle so that if you like one, they're all available. Excellent. Well, I want to have you back on to discuss a particular film in the action genre that is featured in the book, and I think you know which one I'm talking about. I, <laughs> I do know. And well, it, it has the most scenes of any of the films in the book. Oh, interesting. Okay. And mm-hmm. the listeners were being very cryptic, but if you've listened to Kelly and I talk in the past, you're going to figure out what movie we're talking about, but we'll, we'll save that until then. So, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You always bring so much insight into the topics we're discussing. And again, to the listeners, I, I can't begin to tell you enough to, you know, get this book. You're you're not going to regret it for a moment. You're going to it's going to help you to understand the movies you love even better. And uh, it, it's it's been a lot of fun to read. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, 
Uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Kelly. Right, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, so now on this part of the episode, I'm pleased to welcome back uh, writer-director Jim Hemphill. Jim, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Listen, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, there's a there's a lot I want to talk about. Um, we In this episode so far, we've talked about the history of The Exorcist. Um, I've had Kelly Goodner on to discuss sort of a scene-by-scene breakdown of the film. To close out the episode, I, I want to talk about The Exorcist Part 2, The Heretic. And this is a movie that I had actually never seen before. I had never seen a trailer. The only thing I knew about the movie was that uh, Linda Blair reprised her role. Now, this morning, in preparation for this conversation, I sat down and watched the movie for the first time. Now, I'm going to reserve my thoughts for the movie for a little later on in this discussion, but I will say that I was pleasantly surprised when the credits rolled, or the opening title credits, when I saw Louise Fletcher and Richard Burton were in this film, because I didn't know they were in it. You know, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll wait to talk about that one in a moment. But I wonder if you could start off by telling me a little bit about your thoughts on The Exorcist and then kind of roll into if there was even any anticipation for a sequel and sort of what do you think when the, when the sequel came out? Well, you know, I think my feelings about the original Exorcist are probably not too far from what most movie fans and horror fans think. I mean, I think it's kind of one of those films that is pretty much accepted as just part of the you know, the, the canon alongside The Godfather and Vertigo and, and movies like that. Um, you know, although I will admit it was a movie that I think took me a while to warm up to. I, um, you know, as a kid, I, I it had such a reputation before I ever saw it that I think it, it, it was almost impossible for that movie on my first viewing to live up to the sort of mythology around it. Because you have to remember, I mean, when Exorcist came out and you guys may have talked about this already earlier in the show, but I mean, it, it was, you know, it was literally the most successful movie ever made at that point. I think, I mean, I think in terms of just sheer box office dollars, it dethroned the Godfather. It was in close competition with the Godfather. Anyway, it was, it was one of the most successful movies of all time. So it was a huge, huge film. And, you know, Stephen King has a kind of interesting theory as to why that is, why it was so popular, which was, you know, it came out in 1973 and so this was, you know, during Vietnam, Watergate, you know, very big uh, cultural divides similar to what we have now and, and generational cultural divides. And Stephen King's theory is that part of what The Exorcist tapped into was sort of middle class parents fears about their own children and, uh, you know, that sort of conservative parents could relate to a movie where uh, suddenly this young girl was spouting foul language and her head was spinning around and she was puking and all that, you know, it sort of had this metaphoric strength, whether or not people were consciously responding to it in that way. You know, it was a movie that had a much, that had an audience that went way beyond just your typical, you know, niche horror crowd, you know, anyway, but it's, but it's a movie that I think has really aged much like most of William Friedkin's movies. I think it's aged really well. I mean, his whole, I think, one of the things he brought to that movie that was interesting is his documentary background. I mean, the fact that William Friedkin began as a documentarian, I think you can really see in his sort of breakout early 70s movies, both The French Connection and The Exorcist, which are kind of, you know, in some ways, old-fashioned genre movies that are made to feel like something very new because of the way he shoots them. And and, and I used to undervalue that a little bit. You know, I used to sort of think Friedkin 
was sort of lacking in style. I didn't really understand that actually his strength was the sort of naturalism that, that he would bring to those movies. You know, when I was younger, I sort of responded more in terms of horror movies to the John Carpenters of the world and, and uh, you know, the Dario Argentos and the, the Joe Dantes and people who brought like a very sort of polished visual craft to what they were doing. And Friedkin's movies are always a little rougher than that. I mean, I remember uh, Dave Kerr, who's a critic who is not a fan of Friedkin's or at least wasn't of the original Exorcist. You know, he described the Exorcist as having all of the uh, atmosphere of a documentary on strip mining. <laughs> and I think he's right. But I also think that's what makes the, the movie great. I mean, I think the fact that he treats this demonic possession story as matter-of-factly as you possibly can is part of why it holds up so well and part of what is frightening about it, aside, aside, of course, from the sound design, which is kind of the other major thing about that, that movie. I mean, The Exorcist really, you know, Friedkin, one of his big things is, both visually and orally, is figuring out how to kind of subliminally affect the audience, you know, his movie Cruising sort of famously has single frames of like hardcore, uh, sec, you know, kinky sex stuff, like just inserted throughout the movie. And, and, you know, so it sort of subliminally gets in your head and the exorcist, he does all kinds of things with this, the sound design to just really unsettle you and, and put you on edge. And that, that sort of expressionistic sound design combined with the sort of naturalistic visual style, I think is a really effective, potent combo and is part of what makes it a great movie. Now, the interesting thing about the sequel um, is that, you know, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit of, is it's, it's almost, you know, the polar opposite in, in a lot of ways, which, and that had a lot to do, I think with its ultimate reputation, but to speak to your question about whether or not, you know, back in those days, I, I don't think people, you know, people didn't clamor for sequels quite as, uh, you know, immediately as they do now. I mean, it wasn't that, you know, back in the early 70s, it's it's hard to believe. But, you know, The Godfather Part Two was, to my knowledge, the first Hollywood studio movie that had a two in the title like that. It was the first sequel that had, you know, I mean, there had been Ivan the Terrible Part Two, I guess, you know, it from Eisenstein back in whatever. But... Uh, Coppola's Godfather Part Two was the first, I think, first Hollywood studio movie that was like, you know, the the first movie followed by a two. So that gives you an idea of how, even though there had always been series and there had always been sequels, they weren't so prominent. And in fact, sequels in the 70s were often thought of, you know, they didn't protect their franchises the way they do now. Like now if you have a successful movie, the studio is very intent on sort of, keeping the standard going at least on a, at least in terms of the resources they put on into it you know to try to milk it for all it's worth and it you know up until i would say the mid 80s you had some you know big sequels but in general there were always sort of diminishing it, there was always sort of diminishing scale and returns on sequels i was they were usually just sort of quick cash grabs you know and and they wouldn't it wasn't necessarily important to them to have the original director's back. I mean, I'm thinking about something like Jaws 2, which Spielberg had no involvement in and is, you know, I think by any standard, a, a major step down from what the first one was. And, you know, even going into the early 80s, you think about a movie like The Sting 2. I mean, they made yeah. a sequel to The Sting that didn't have Robert Redford or Paul Newman. Uh, it was Jackie Gleason and Matt Davis. So it was just kind of the sort of conventional wisdom was, well, if you put out something with the number two after the title, 
you know, it's gonna, it's guaranteed a certain audience, but it didn't need, they weren't necessarily even going for, it wasn't like today, like they weren't necessarily going for the movies exceeding the audience of the first one or the, or the gross or anything like that. And so the point I'm trying to get back around to here is Exorcist 2 originated as something much less ambitious than what it became and, and much smaller in scale. It was sort of originally just going to be a real low budget cash grab for Warner brothers. I mean, they, they were, they originally were going to do it for you know a few million bucks and they were going to, the, the premise was that it was, it was going to take the detective from the first movie played by uh, Lee J Cobb. The premise was something having to do with him investigating the death of, father Marin, and it was going to be made up almost like half of it was going to be flashbacks to the original it was going to use footage from the original it was going to use outtakes from the original like it was going to be a very shoddy cheap kind of thing and their at Warner brothers attitude was just we'll spend a few million on that dump it into theaters and we'll make a bunch back and it ended up evolving into something very different because they had a writer uh, whose name I'm drawing a blank on. What the heck is his name? Um, I've got my Making of Exorcist 2 book in front of me, so I'm going to flip op- sure, flip it sure. open to the uh, the list of, of, of to the credits here. Okay, so the writer William Goldhart or w- William Goodhart. I'm sorry, was the writer. So William Goodhart was hired by Warner Brothers to write this sort of treatment, I believe, and the treatment found its way into the hands of John Borman, who. John Borman had actually turned down the first Exorcist. He was one of many, many directors. Mike Nichols was another one. Bob Fosse. All these people were offered the Exorcist and turned it down before Friedkin said yes. Uh, Borman had turned the first one down, and but in that and in that time, you know, around that same time, I guess maybe a year before the Exorcist, something like that, uh, he made Deliverance for Warner Brothers and was nominated for a Best Director Oscar, and that movie was a big hit. So he was he was a pretty hot director at Warner Brothers. And when he got the treatment for Exorcist 2, there were little things in it that really jumped out at him that, that interested him about it. And as soon as John Borman said he was interested in doing it, it, that suddenly changed the kind of movie it was going to become from Warner Brothers' point of view. You know, they had one of the major directors. It was like the equivalent of if today, uh, you know, Ryan Coogler or somebody like that said, I want to do Exorcist 2. Like, suddenly the resources kind of expanded again. And the idea was, well, this is no longer going to be a cheap little cash grab. We're going to make this a big event movie. And Borman worked with Goodhart on sort of developing it into something uh, very different. And then it became even more different because Lee J. Cobb died. And so the entire premise of him being the main character in the movie had to be scrapped. And it kind of just kind of kept, uh, kept evolving from there. But by the time the movie came out in 1977... You know, it was now a big, expensive John Borman movie, and it was much more a John Borman movie than an Exorcist movie, uh, in the sense that Borman, when he took the assignment, you know, part of the appeal for him was that because it had this built-in name recognition, he kind of had carte blanche. Like, the studio, I mean, there's, there's this misperception about The Exorcist 2 that it was a big flop, and that's actually not really true. I mean, it wasn't... It certainly was a disappointment commercially compared to the first one, but it was in the black before it ever hit a theater because Warner Brothers had these, you know, they had deals with ancillary ancillary deals with television and foreign rights and things like that. And so just based on the Exorcist name recognition, that movie was, that was, it was at break even before it ever opened. So Borman had an extraordinary amount of freedom to kind of do whatever he wanted. And he took that freedom 
to make something again very, very it's 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 almost a hard movie to describe even to people who haven't seen it but it is it's nothing like the first movie really tonally stylistically you know even content wise it's just it's very very different and 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 i think that uh, when the movie opened was a major problem in terms of the audience and critical reception because, you know, with sequels, there is this expectation that it's going to, you're going to basically get the same thing you got the first time, only hopefully better or a little bigger. And I think it's a, it's sort of a, you know, to have a truly successful sequel is a very fine line to walk because if it's, if you're just repeating what the first one was, that's disappointing. But if you go too far in another direction, the way that uh, Borman did in this movie, or the way they went, that George Lucas and BWL Norton went when they did More American Graffiti, uh, audiences are really bewildered. And I happen to think More American Graffiti is a great movie, and I happen to think Exorcist II: The Heretic is a great movie. So I, I really like when filmmakers take that freedom and do that with it. But when it opened um, in 1977, the response was very vitriolic. I mean, audiences hated Exorcist II. You know, the opening, the opening crowds, people were booing and walking out and just they just hated it to the extent that that Warner Brothers convinced Borman to recut the movie like a week into its release. I mean, it opened and it was a two hour movie. And then they had him cut an hour and 42 minute version that was sort of more streamlined and a little more coherent in a way. But that for those of us who like the kind of madness and insanity and overstuffed quality of that movie, that version is not very, it's, 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 it's inferior and it didn't really do the trick. It wasn't, there was nothing that could be done with that movie that was going to suddenly make it the mass audience appealing, uh, you know, smash success that the exorcist was. Well, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, I mean, the, the stars of this movie, I mean, Louise Fletcher, she was coming off of best, best actress award for one floor of the cuckoo says, I mean, this had major star power in the film. Yeah, it, Bert, Richard Burton. It was originally, and the, the casting was a little different. Um, originally, Borman wanted John Voight to play the priest that Richard Burton plays. Uh, he wanted to be a younger character, and Voight and Borman kind of went around and around, and they, they, Voight kept going back and forth on whether he wanted to do it, and ended up falling out, and then the studio, um, and, oh, and actually, I, I believe Borman wanted, once Voight fell out, Borman wanted Christopher Walken, for that part, but the studio said no to Christopher Walken because he was not a name at that time. This was pre the Deer Hunter, so nobody really knew who he was, and they, they wanted a name, and hence hence Richard Burton and Louise Fletcher. And Louise Fletcher's part in the original script was actually a man, uh, and I think Borman wanted Chris Sarandon for that part. Um, but again, he was also thought of as not to be a big enough star because basically, once the movie became this A-list John Borman movie, the studio kind of wanted to. They wanted to, you know, pile on the stars, make it as big, big and, uh, you know, as possible. And so, yeah, Louise Fletcher was coming off of Cuckoo's Nest. She was huge. Burton was Richard Burton. He had a huge reputation. Um, and then, you know, really the only they, I mean, and there's a, and James Earl Jones even, you know, was not necessarily a huge movie star, but a huge. But I mean, what he had been, I think he'd been nominated maybe for an Oscar at that point for The Great White Hope, and he was, um, you know, he was certainly big and and you know and you had Ned Beatty coming back from Deliverance so yeah it's it was definitely it's an A-list movie for sure in terms of the the cast which I think is another reason why it bewildered people so much to see sort of this you know cast of Oscar caliber actors in a very strange goofy 
uh, horror fantasy movie. That's interesting. When I watched it today, I went in. I mean, I I had heard all the, the you know sort of the vitriol that you have mentioned. I had I had posted on Twitter that I was going to be watching this movie for the very first time, and a lot of people were saying good luck with that. But putting all that aside, I I also know that you are a, a big fan of the film, so I went into this with a a very very open mind. And I'll tell you a couple things that that I really really stood out to me. One was the pacing of the film. When uh, when Kelly and I were talking earlier, we were talking about how the first entire first act of the original Exorcist is an incredibly slow burn that would turn modern movie modern horror movie audiences off as far as uh-huh. as far as it being you know the pacing of the film. Uh, I found that this movie sort of just opens up opens up with a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the film opens up with an exorcism gone wrong and then jumps right into where are we at with 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 reagan and i mean it the pace of the film immediately the movie just gets going right away second point i watched this film i watched it on uh through my xbox and i was using my uh my xbox headphone gaming headphones uh six minutes into the movie i had to take them off i was getting freaked out by the soundtrack and the sound effects (laughs) so i had to Uh I, i couldn't do the surround sound for the movie so the sound design it was which you touched on with freaking but this particular sound design was so eerie and so unsettling to me that i had to start just watching it through the speakers on my television yeah, Borman, Borman takes Friedkin's experience to a whole other level with the sound. And, and, and a lot of Exorcist 2 is sort of, you know, is very calculatedly designed. Again, that's one thing it does have in common with the first movie is it's, it's very calculatedly designed to put you on edge. And Borman does all kinds of things, you know, the, the sound and, and then visually he will, you know, he just did, he does things throughout the movie. Like, for example, he, he tried to remove as much of as much of blue and green as he could from the 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 color palette um because his theory was that blue and green are like the most the colors that appear the most in nature and he didn't he wanted the movie to feel unnatural and so whenever he could if he saw blue or green he took it out i mean it's obviously he couldn't completely control it there's some blue and green in the movie but uh but he would just do things like that the whole movie there's a lot of things like that that are it's kind of designed to put you on edge and without knowing exactly why, which I think is another reason why maybe people don't like it. I mean, maybe they're emotionally responding to it in the way he intended, but that's not a pleasurable experience for some people watching a movie. That's a very, very good point. I don't know how I feel about the movie, to be honest with you, Jim. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just fresh off watching it, and I like to give every movie like this uh, a couple, you know, viewings to completely wrap my head around it. Uh, my expectations were not high, but they were kind of high, you know, because you had mentioned that you think this is a great film. So on its own, I found the film to be very, very interesting mm-hmm. and, and a very interesting concept. I think it was plagued a little bit by some shoddy special effects that were the norm at the time, you know, and I think, uh, you know, given, you know, today's modern technology, I think that wouldn't have been an issue. But what would you tell somebody who who has just seen The Exorcist for the first time? What would you tell them? before going into The Exorcist Part 2? Well, I would say, first of all, <laughs> that, again, you, you kind of have to not look at it as... You, you can't look at it as a sequel the way you look at, you know, Empire Strikes Back as a sequel, or the new Halloween as a sequel. Like, those are movies that, even if they're different, they're still essentially continuing 
the the same general flavor that the original did. And Exorcist 2 is really not that. You have to kind of put that expectation out of your head. I mean, I think the, the way I would try to prepare somebody for Exorcist 2 on first viewing, uh, and I think it is a movie that demands repeat viewings to be appreciated. I mean, I, I don't think it's a movie that you can really get the first time. Um, and I think part of people's frustration with it is that because of the way it's constructed, it requires multiple viewings. I mean, the, the Borman builds in all of these different connections and, and a lot of it is not done through, it's, it's not done through literary means the way most movies tell their stories. It's done purely through the imagery. And I'll, I'll just give you an example is, you know, there's a device in the movie that, that is used. Um, what the heck is it called? The synchronizer. Uh, this, this like light, Thing that the characters look into and it sort of hypnotizes them and connects them psychically. And there are parts in the movie where characters are communicating with each other psychically. And they, you, if you, if you haven't seen the movie before, you don't necessarily understand what's going on. But when you watch it again, you will see Richard Burton will have, there will be a sun behind his head and his head will move back and forth. And so the sun will sort of flash like the synchronizer lights. And this is kind of Borman's way of telling you that that's how the character, that the characters are in that space where they're communicating with each other through the synchronizer, even though the scene wasn't necessarily preceded by one of those synchronizer scenes. And I also have a theory that a lot of, that a lot of the movie can almost be interpreted as this sort of, you know, as a sort of dream or state of hypnosis that the characters are undergoing. And, and, and there are a lot of visual clues to that. And anyway, all those kinds of things, you're not going to get on first viewing. So I think when you watch, when people watch an first viewing and they're trying to understand it literally the way you go into a normal movie and certainly the way you can watch the first exorcist, uh, it's very, very frustrating. And I think you get frustrated and angry and, and, and that's why people don't like it. But, but my recommendation to people going into it the first time would be to not necessarily even try to follow the story, like watch the movie, Treat it like it's a piece of music. I mean, you don't necessarily, when you listen to a piece of classical music, when you listen to a piece by Mozart, you don't have to articulate verbally what it's doing to you or what it's saying to you. Um, it's, it's about a kind of emotional and sensory experience. And Exorcist 2 is kind of like that, too. I mean, I think it's, I think the first time you watch it, you should just watch it as a sort of, uh, you know, as, as an experience of light and sound and color and uh, and sensation. And that's kind of, that's kind of what it's doing to you. And then once you've experienced it that way, you can go back and you can watch it again and again. And the movie actually does, if you watch it over and over again, uh, start to make sense. The things that don't seem to make sense on first viewing, once you see what Borman's up to and you, and you watch it, uh, it, it starts to make sense. And there's actually a great, great Blu-ray of the movie out now from Shout Factory that has a commentary track. I can't remember the guy's name who did the commentary track, but it it's, it's, there, I mean, there's two commentary tracks. There's one by Borman, and then there's another one by a uh, film historian, a guy who makes me look like somebody who doesn't like Exorcist 2. I mean, this guy is the ultimate Exorcist 2 fan and scholar, and he really does a great job of kind of analyzing the movie and providing visual analysis and, and explaining. And he actually thinks the movie does connect more with the first one than I had noticed before I watched his commentary. He sort of points out a lot. He, he, he points out a lot of things that the first movie lays the groundwork for that are into. He also makes the point, which I find interesting, that the proper order to watch the Exorcist movies in is to watch Friedkin's Exorcist first, then Exorcist 3, then Exorcist 2. And he claims that that is the way that they all make the most sense and have like the sort of are most emotionally 
effective. But anyway, my, my answer to you would be for people to tell people just to sort of sit back and let the movie wash over you and don't necessarily try, don't necessarily try to be as active a participant in it as you ordinarily would be. You can do that on the repeat viewings. And I think that's kind of the best way to come at Exorcist too. Tell me about, uh, before we wrap this up, tell me a couple things. One, did Borman's career take a bit of a hit after the release of this film? Yeah. I mean, he, and, and I'm not sure. I think part of it was self imposed. I think he was very uh, disappointed by the reception of the movie because it was, uh, you know, again, he had put a lot into it and had, you know, I mean, I think he treated it like a very, you know, treated it very seriously and, and, and put a lot of his soul into it and experimented a lot. And then I think when the movie came out and was treated as just this total disaster, even though, again, it, it did okay. Like it, it, it broke even just on the basis of all the pre-sales and stuff. And then when it opened theatrically, like people came, it just wasn't the big hit that they wanted it to be. Uh, but it got mostly terrible reviews. I mean, there were a few people like Pauline Kale who liked it and, you know, and, and certainly in years since its reputation has, uh, there's still a lot of people who hate it, but there are also a lot of people like Scorsese who says he thinks it's a masterpiece. And, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's had a bit of a, um, you know, a, a revival interpretation. But at the time, it was mostly really despised. And Borman, I think, was quite wounded by that. And I don't know that he couldn't have gotten another movie going right away, but he certainly didn't. He took a few years uh, before he came back to filmmaking with Excalibur. But I do think Exc- I do think the sort of combination of after Deliverance, he did Zardoz and Exorcist 2. And Zardoz is a very wacky movie. Again, a movie that a lot of people love now but that was kind of thought of as very, very strange. And, and so it did, I think it definitely hurt his reputation. It certainly helped to hurt his self, uh, confidence. Uh, but he sure, but he came back hard in, um, 80 or 81 with, uh, Excalibur, which was a great movie and, and actually quite popular. The Exorcist is thought of as just, like I said, classic masterpiece film. Exorcist two is people are warming up to it, but it was, thought of a bit of as a bit of a disaster when it came out i wouldn't label it that way i i I found it very interesting and 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 feel compelled to watch it again asap but i feel like the exorcist 3 is the forgotten sequel that nobody ever talks about and it's never in the pop culture and it's just never really mentioned at all and i wonder if you have any thoughts on that film well i would say that you're not hanging around with uh the right people okay. um because <laughs> I, I i think in the horror community i have found that it's uh talked about all the time i mean i feel like horror filmmakers and horror enthusiasts uh you know there, there's a scene in that movie in exorcist 3 which i won't talk about in detail because i don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen the movie but there is a sort of very unique shot in that movie there's a jump scare in that movie that is choreographed in a very unusual way and is very effective it's one of the most I mean, if you watch it, in, if you, I saw the movie in theater when it came out, and if you see it with an audience, I mean, you can just see the entire theater levitate when this moment happens. It's a great shock, and it's a scene that gets every, almost everyone I know who's really into horror, they always bring up that scene as like one of the great scares in a movie. And um, I think that movie, yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. I think like in the popular consciousness, it didn't, you know, I, I don't think it was a particularly successful movie when it came out. And it was, just kind of forgotten and didn't, you know, but, but it act, that one actually didn't take long at all to generate a sort of, um, 
reappraisal, at least among kind of cinephile horror fans. I feel like there's, there, they, maybe it's small cult, but it's a very, there's a very devoted cult that loves just three. And it also was reissued recently on Blu-ray by, um, Chow factory. And I think has kind of a, that one has re that one's completely undergone. I think a reappraisal in the sense that, uh, you know, they're, they're, I think the only people who would trash Exorcist three at this point are probably people who haven't seen it. I think most, most of the people who have seen it who are horror fans are quite high on it. And, and Blatty in general, you know, the, you know, three was written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who wrote the novel that the first and the screenplay for the first exorcist. And, uh, you know, Blatty is a very interesting filmmaker. I mean, he did another movie called the ninth configuration with Stacey Keach. That's fantastic. Um, and I think, I think he, uh, I think he's sort of, people are sort of, coming around on him and I think they're sort of coming around on Exorcist 3 and and I have to say the thing about the Exorcist series is I think every Exorcist movie I like a lot I mean I think even um, you know like Rennie Harlan's Exorcist the beginning I would say is probably the weakest of all the Exorcist movies and it's still an awfully good movie it's still got a lot of interesting things you know there's no the thing, the thing about the Exorcist series as opposed to a lot of other franchises is there's not a single Exorcist movie that wasn't done with a fairly like serious sense of purpose and ambition you know there none of them are in spite of what exorcist 2 was originally to be none of them are like quick knockoffs i mean they're very ambitious movies and um but yeah i think three i think three has actually acquired a uh, kind of a cult i think if you go on twitter and search exorcist three you'll probably find a lot of still kind of talking about it and, and liking it and um, again or that that may say something about the insular world of horror fanatics that I live in too but it definitely uh, it's definitely got a reputation that is I guess for lack of a better word superior to that of two which really uh, really divides people I see what you're saying there so I, I saw the Exorcist 3 when it came out on home video I think the movie came out 90 91 somewhere in that time <laughs> and I saw that and I would have been aged 13 or 14 it was it was honestly it was too much for me to wrap my head around and I haven't seen it since uh, I don't ever really hear the negative talk about the Exorcist 3 but I but apparently like you said I'm not I'm not in the right circles because I don't ever hear any talk about it but I can tell you this I'm watching it tonight I'm gonna. I, I'm, yeah, it's 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 great. It's a great movie. I'm I'm excited. You've got me. You've got me uh, pretty amped up to see that movie. So, Jim, listen. I I, I want to thank you for taking just a little time to to discuss The Exorcist too. It's uh, it's a movie I probably wouldn't have seen unless I had uh, you know gotten your recommendation. You know, and uh, I'm glad that I did. And it's it's a, I, I, I the best word for me. I don't want to say it's a challenging film. Bit, but uh, after first viewing, I'm 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 not ready to say I'm done. I want to watch it again. So I really really appreciate your recommendation. I appreciate you taking a little time to come on the show and discuss the film a little bit. And uh, thank you so much. No, my pleasure. I'm always happy to preach the gospel of The Exorcist too. Outstanding. All right, all right. Thanks, Jim. We'll talk soon. All right. Okay. Thank uh, you. Hang on. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.